Hello and welcome to the Artist Contemporary Podcast, the podcast that champions contemporary artists, curators and galleries. Listen each week to hear me, Anna Woodward, speak to a different person about their experiences, their practice and what they're currently up to within the contemporary arts. Hi, welcome to the Artist Contemporary Podcast. Today I'm joined by artist and curator Stacey, who is the founder of Unit One Gallery Workshop. So Stacey, how would you describe your practice? Um, so I'm an abstract painter. I do uh, gestural paintings and I'm really a process painter. I really love process more than anything. The act of painting is just incredibly absenting experience and a lot of times the results are almost less important as the act of making um, but it's also this witnessing um, so there's these moments these crossroads you could call them or landmark moments whilst painting that direct you and they also feel I guess as I've heard it said before about writing it feels like divine dictation you just feel moved by it rather than yourself. So it's this sort of uh, absenteeing from the rational and allowing this kind of thing to happen. Definitely. So then obviously within your colors, within your work, I've kind of seen some way you'll stick to just using one color. Um, and then others you've got kind of different like blues and pink tones. How would you define your use of color within your pieces? So for a really long time, and in fact, we're both alumni from City and Guilds, and whilst doing my master's there, I was doing these incredibly dense, colorful, and also auto-dictation sort of text-embedded paintings. And also they were embedded with photographs. They were really, really dense. And there was this critical moment where I kind of said, what am I trying? I asked myself what I was trying to do um, with the painting, and there was this desire to get powerfully poetic. So to say as much with as little as possible. And the only device I knew to do that with was to limit my palette and limit and to kind of test myself to see if I could get across the kind of same thing that I was investigating with these incredibly dense paintings with less. So I reduced my palette to almost black and white with a few shades at that time. and my graduation show was really paintings that only had on the surface black and white and a few shades, earth shades. And then I kind of um, utilized the edges, the inside edges of the paintings I utilized as the past and I embedded them with photographs. Um, so this idea that the moment in which we live is essentially the abstract, that we cannot really grasp the time in which we live, we only reflect on it either as a proposition in the future or the past. So I had the, I used the edges as the devices of the future and the past. So the top edge was the future. Um, And so that was really the first time I limited my palette with real satisfaction that I felt this relationship to what I was trying to understand and then what was happening on the canvas. And that really lasted nearly, I don't know, maybe 20 years, but I say 17. and I don't think it's a surprise that with the kind of very limited palette that I was working on, and I have a lot of, I don't consider somber, but dark paintings. And with COVID, the, a number of things kind of triggered. Um, and that was, 
I was kind of liberated to experiment. So I had the whole gallery. I had my whole studio. I had the car park. I could experiment in a way I haven't in years and years. And it was just this letting go. Um, and also a desire to ex experiment with joy in my practice, in my paintings, in the use of color. And it's still brand new. So it's literally within just these last two years that I've brought a full color palette back. And the best answer I always have in that regard is I really don't understand what I'm doing. And when I do understand, when I do understand what I'm doing, I, um, I usually destroy it. With it. If it makes sense and it starts to have that kind of aesthetic of beauty, I, I want it to vibrate somewhere within itself. And so the choice of colors, again, I do a lot of meditation in advance. I try to absent the rational, logical and so I can't say my method is easy to describe, but it's this, I'm, I'm in love with blue um, and that's growing up by the sea, but also the sky. And so this whole new series often has this kind of what feels like a skylight effect. And they weirdly abstractly relate more to Renaissance ceilings than anything else where you look at those church ceilings and there's like this, mess of stuff happening around the edges and then there's this lift to the light in the middle um and that's the best kind of post painting analysis i can give at this stage um but it it's a very joyful return to color they're getting very dense again they're getting kind of indecipherable and and they're i'm working with uh well the most recent series it's called um 12 marks and they're the epiphany chronicles and so i'm using the exact same 12 marks in every painting but then i'm creating this dynamic that i can't control where you know i really dump the color and i let the colors go but the component uh, marks are the same each time but the, i might change the scale um the density of the paint and then when i because i mix oil acrylic and ink the kind of fight on the paper is the resulting kind of thing I can't control. Um, so that's that's kind of where the experiment yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, that sounds so interesting. When you were saying that, I was just, in my head, I had like a hundred questions going through that I wanted to ask. But I think from <laughs> Go <for> how <laughs> did you find, because obviously we'll talk a bit more about Unit 1 later on in the episode, but obviously Unit 1, like you run residencies as always, artists and kind of people within the arts there how did you find in lockdown yeah. it influenced your practice by it suddenly just being you there well I think that you know I can't I probably have a bit of Zelig's disease which you know that kind of thing that I adopt everybody's personality yeah. that I'm talking to <laughs> um I think I have Zelig studio sharing disease so that every artist that comes at like oh I yeah um but yes and no but I think probably more importantly because of the risk of that I think I I became very regimented in my practice and I protected my practice in itself um so I think when I was released from well I was just set into loneliness here really um suddenly again I could abandon somebody watching me the kind of fishbowl because if you've been here it's a yeah. real fishbowl my studio's watching visitors it's wide open to downstairs it's wide open to the studio so because I didn't have the fishbowl I think it was like oh well no one's watching I can do what the hell I want right 
And yeah, so I did I kind of performance element that we subconsciously aware of. And that this kind of, uh, what would you call that? The kind of judge and jury that we allow to hang out in our head. And when you kind of let go of that, because we think, you know, we believe in these kind of structures that says, you know, my practice has to have continuity. My practice has to meet these sort of things. And, and, and we build up these, these rules and this kind of judge and jury in our mind that I think often might be eclipsing a whole body of work we were unfamiliar yeah definitely it's quite interesting I've had a couple of conversations with people recently talking about kind of like um curators using Instagram to find artists and from like an artist point of view I only really post like finished pieces and stuff and it's all kind of I post what I want people to see whereas when I've spoken to curators they're like no we want to see more of people's processes and not just kind of all these perfect pieces and I think it's this really interesting conversation happening now with people being like, have your Instagram find pieces, but let us into your practice more. Yeah, I think humanity wants to connect with humanity. I mean, the perfect object is, is inhumane in a way because we're imperfect animals. <laughs> so that, yeah. I, and again, I think that's why I'm wedded to the abstract because I, I had a scholarship to portraiture school. I had this kind of, you know, what would you call that reproductive practice um so i could really manifest those things and i think the the kind of no no the story for me unfolded that where where it became the most interesting was in the mistakes in the experimentation and then the birth of something completely new to me not me kind of manifesting it it was this you know that moment where you witness a, a passage in a painting that you're doing and you're blown away and and you can't really claim to have, or it, as an abstract painter, I can't claim to have constructed that. I, I set the stage for it to happen. And then when you witness it, and then there's that thing, and I've done it in my practice, where I've, uh, there's a passage that I've, I've fallen totally in love with, and then I want to make it into an enormous painting. And then I have to get very rational, and I have to get very strict about how to reconstruct what I didn't construct in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. Definitely. I think it's that thing. It's it's those mistake, well, inverted commas, mistake moments that are the moments when you just have those like click and you're like, wow, this is what I want to do. And then it's sometimes so hard to then like sit back and be like, how on earth did I have it? How on earth did this happen? And I think I can really relate to that in your sense of using so many different painting mediums and building up those relationships and some and a part of kind of using acrylic and oil and inks together is you are giving power over to the mediums yes yes so it's this controlled accident isn't it it's um it's very lab laboratory kind of behavior and that you know the experiment is to see what's going to happen and and i think that was it was all measures of letting go of control that was going on in my practice probably for the past five years and and that again covid just said fuck it i can yeah. <laughs> I can throw the paint around. I mean, there's some pictures I have in my Instagram of these kind of, it looked like murder scenes downstairs because I really never painted red paintings in my life. And I was using gallons of red paint. Um, and it, and I really, I, I love the abandon. I love the abandon of huge work and getting really messy and slipping in the paint. I mean, I've had these visions of slipping in the paint and hitting my head and having my husband just finding me in a pile of paint and that's it. And I think it'd be like the best way to go, right? You just, <laughs> and I have, I have 
flipped in paint. I have one painting. It's called um, Ibarra's Interruption. He was one of the um, residents here. And I was in the middle, like really like, and my work is really athletic because it's four to six hours and I can't stop painting till I stop painting. And so I was really in the throes of this huge painting. I think it's 190 by 180, I don't know. And, and he kind of popped in and shouted and I dropped my tool. And, and, but it made the most exciting mark that I can still point out in the painting. And it taught me this whole new way of making a mark. And so the, the paintings was called Ivana's Interruption because he interrupted me and I, I learned something incredibly new. And, and the painting is really dynamic because of it. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's almost like your painting process is also like performance art. Yeah, I've had in the way that you're making it. Yeah, I've had conversations. In fact, Rosalind Davis was here. She did a conversation with me and um, she came in and we had a long chat. And she, because I work on the floor, she asked me if I would exhibit a painting on the floor. And I said no. But, but <laughs> I did say in the same breath, I said I would probably be happy to paint a painting during an exhibition. But actually, you know, I do paint them to be on the wall. Um, I don't paint them to be seen and looked down at. So that was just a, that was an interesting um, conversation I had with her on that side. Yeah, I think it's really interesting with kind of the ideas around paintings and how they're made compared to how they're hung. And I had a conversation with Kim Booker a couple of weeks ago, and she's also a Sitting Guilds alumni. And she made this one painting that it she really she said she really struggled with the making process, but the whole idea of it is that it could be hung anyway. Yeah. Well mine and I don't have an upside right. Yeah, mine you can hang landscape portrait, change it depending on your mood. But I wouldn't really be happy if it was installed on the floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like only certain works, certain like painting works, work on the floor. I mean, I and do, kind of... it was funny when Sarah Dwyer was working next to me. Um, I'd work on a piece and she, she has a really similar instinct about the aesthetics. And she plays a game that I often play. Because if you can see the figuration very overtly, or you know, if it pops up like, oh, look, it looks like a blah. There's some I can see, a, you know, like a whatever, and you get this kind of um, accidental figuration that appears in the abstraction. Um, she likes very much to kind of turn the painting to make sure that she discovers that capacity, um, or she gets frustrated that if she sees it in an abstract piece, she she hates that she can't not see it anymore. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I see a chicken. And then all you can see when you look at that painting is a chicken instead of the painting itself. Um, so that's always interesting. And I often photograph my paintings on the floor when they're wet and, and, and then pop it up on my phone or on my laptop to kind of look at the composition in, in, in the way that you can't when it's yeah. on the floor. Um, so whilst it's still wet, I have a chance to alter the composition if it's really not working once it's kind of upright definitely I think there's also that thing with photographing work and I think what smartphones allow is I definitely whenever I'm kind of stuck with a painting I'll photograph it and then in the studios I'll then go for a walk mm. and look at the photo yeah. away from the painting yeah and I just find it really helps me kind of have fresh eyes looking yeah well it's also add it convert it into black and white and see what the composition is in its structure I do that a lot um you know, you can just, you can really see the weight in the painting without color. And then you just get to kind of see, oh, there's this, the, because I think the, the human eye looks for 
the scaffolding beyond the color. And that, that compo those compositional tools are really just easy to see when you convert it to black and white. Yeah, I mean, I do that with my paintings as well. And I have this thing at the moment. I'm too, I'm too scared to try and do it, but I really want to make a painting which is just black and white. You should. And to see how it changes my practice. I think I use like sometimes too many colors. I be think it would be really interesting. I did that 17 years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it gets incredibly exciting to work only with one, two colors. Um, and, but it, it's, a, it's a totally different um, game. And I, as, as nervous as I was leaving color, I was as nervous coming back to color. And I'm still nervous with color. And I'm still, I still don't have a sense of belonging with these pieces. You know, they're kind of, because the, the other practice is, is so long in the making. And I really understand my gesture. And I know what I'm doing. And I have these kind of trajectories with it. And I'm kind of, I'm almost inhabiting two studios with my limited palette trajectory. And then this kind of, wild abandoned color kind of um as one collector said to me he said i just don't understand how you can do both <laughs> yeah i don't either um and it's a risk i think in a way if you look at the kind of classical because we so i think what what we often in terms of art history we kind of look at an artist's practice and we think that's the only work they ever made and i mm. know it's impossible to not have had wild experimentation in all of these artist studios, but the, the archivist and the gallerist kind of make us think that they were just one note. Um, but I, I can't believe that's possible. Yeah, definitely. I think also you can see what I find quite interesting though with going back to social media is how people are posting their work. And it means I like going through people's feeds and seeing how their practices changed and developed yes. over time. That evolution. I think it's really interesting. Yes, I do too. And, and for me, I mean, I, I really see the relationship to every painting I make. And in fact, even my photography practice, the kind of crossovers are incredible. Um, but you have to know my practice pretty well. Yeah. So what's a typical day in the studio for you? <laughs> typical day in the studio is I do everything else but paint. Um, so managing what is now an 11-year dream, I guess, but five years in the space here, coming up on six, really. I feel like we lost a year, so I can't even count it. But um, so I spend at least three to five days a week running the gallery. And whether that's like right now, we have uh, 35 artists and nearly 80 pieces of work in the current Invitational. Um, and I've we figured out how to do a COVID-restricted deinstall. Um, so we're using a booking system and uh, people come and so it's all this crazy thing. So, I mean, these are extreme conditions. But, you know, we usually with every month to six weeks, we have a show that's either um, curated by ourselves or externally. We have the solo residency we manage a writing residency and a bursary. Um, we have a one year, one artist bursary. And then we have twice a year, the radical residency, which is 10 artists um, and, and an exhibition. So the, the program is dense and, and takes a lot of energy. And, and frankly, the, really the kind of main employees are me and um, Nemo Nonemacher, who's an amazing artist who I've exhibited with and he's my associate director. Um, so, that, you know, 
we pat ourselves on the back with the amount we get through. Um, and we are building the team. We've got a new um, assistant that's helping us with everything, and we just found a, new, a social media person, which is great. But um, so that takes up the lion's share of, of all my time. Um, but when I started the space, I really, really promised to not lose my practice. And I also think one of the main motives of starting the space is that I just wanted to live an eternal master's degree program. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that really was the dream. The dream was just, to, and, and I have to give compliments where they're due. The, the nurturing environment of City and Guilds is nothing short of miraculous. Um, when we hear these incredible competitive, soul-breaking, tear you down to build you back up, master's programs. And I just, Sitting Gills was one of the most profoundly altering experiences of my life. So I think that that experience it, it was at the core of what I wanted to emulate here. So it meant that I could have my studio practice and then I could have lots of artists around that would stimulate my practice that would, I hope, in turn could stimulate theirs create that nurturing environment um, because I don't think there's any competition in the art world and I don't think there's, um, what do you call it, there's, there's room for more and room for everyone. Uh, so then there's this kind of, so that's the other experiment that's going on here is, you know, can I keep my practice really, really in, in, in the middle of it all? And so Sunday and Mondays are dedicated to my time, which means I forfeit a day with the kids. <laughs> Um, yeah. And that's that's hard because when I have time off, I want to be here, and then I'm here. There's yeah. invariably things I've got to do for the gallery. So it's, but it's just a discipline, and and I, I love every bit of it so much that it's almost doesn't matter. I but I really do have to force myself to keep my painting practice going. I have to really keep it there. Yeah, definitely. I think like this year, I've definitely kind of. It's not you obviously do so much more than no, but I, I do, do but see you're yeah. walking in my steps and I witness that and it's and, and you know maybe I'll find another time but it's a conversation for you and I to have about how dynamic artists like us that want to work with and help other artists how we balance that and how we don't forfeit yeah. our practice in the meantime definitely and I think I kind of before kind of leaving sitting guilds I think when you're at art school that I had like Monday to Friday I could just be in the studio all day whereas now it's like okay balancing studio with doing podcasts going to work but you must be a bit like me you want to do all of it I love all of it like I don't it's not like I I'm sacrificing my practice to have a gallery it's like it's almost like a tsunami effect I love all of it and it's yeah. kid in the candy shop and I waited a long time to be in this position you're young so you got tons of time to get out. <laughs> Yeah, and I think also for me, like I find doing all the other stuff with the art contemporary and curating, it informs my practice so much. See, that's what I mean. It's this all. It's almost all the same thing. It's just different channels. Um, yeah, and you just tune to that channel, and you're in that because people say, "How can you do that?" And and, and it it isn't. It, they're not different personalities. It's not split for status. It's just all the same thing, but you're tuning to a different environment, a different station. Definitely. I think for me, it's just like with having like my other job as well. It's just like I always say in my head, I'm like, if I didn't have to do that, which obviously you have to do because financially at the moment, like I've only just graduated. If I didn't have to do that, then I'd have enough time to then equally split things. You say but that, the moment, you say that of... because I worked yeah. for 20 years in architectural project management. And 
to feed my habit, right? To just make sure I could pay for my studio and keep that going. Um, and that kind of split. It's an interesting coaching thing. I'm, I'm actually wanting to explore with a number of artists or maybe even as a bit of research because that kind of, um, I do this job to make money to support that job. I'm very interested in, in, in migrating artists into the mindset that their practice can support them. Um, and yeah. sometimes I think when, that's maybe not the right word, but when you bifurcate that, that you, you think work is for making money and my practice is something else. Um, it, 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 I think it can be dangerous um, in terms of this, de in, in a way, devaluing your practice. If you allow your practice to take care of you, it's very likely to do that. And if you think a job has to take care of you, it's very likely your practice won't. So I, 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 and I have so many conversations with so many artists on this that it's now a subject I'm really interested in. Yeah, I think it's also like really good that you're having these conversations. I think sometimes the financial side of things and the reality of being an artist and being in London, which is expensive, isn't openly spoken about. Right, and so this, the, the greatest thing in the world that's kind of, broken the whole back of that and, and brought on so many conversations as Matthew Burroughs. Um, and that, you know, if you are selling 15 paintings a month at 200 quid, you're done, right? Yeah. And you're not sweating and exhausting yourself at a waitressing job or these jobs that tend to be minimum wage and physical that you're tired so that you don't even have the energy for your practice. Um, yeah. So there's, I think there's a real revolution afoot in that way. And, and I, I've, when we do the radical residencies, a lot of times we end up in these mentoring and, and coaching sessions that are really interesting because we, we invite the conversation, not because we think we know better, but having that conversation and, and saying, how do you navigate that? And how do you put this value in your practice and the value of your day? You know, and there's so much room for um, kind of expansion in that regard. Yeah, definitely. I think I've kind of, I'm lucky at the moment from my other job that I'm on furlough. So it's nice. Kind of, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I'm kind of like seeing what it would be like if I was just doing artist contemporary stuff and my own practice. And it's like the past three days when I was in isolation with COVID, I didn't really make that much work. I was more just kind of doing admin things. Um, but now, like I've literally just been getting up. I've just been working from home for the past couple of days but I've just been do making works on paper and then having doing one podcast recording a day and a couple of lives. And I'm like, this is balancing my time. And I'm feeling like my practice is, ha is being given enough yeah. time. So just imagine if I'm you, not trying if to you on... converted a hundred of your small works on paper into artist support pledge. And that was going to give you as much or more than your furlough job. And so you've got an inventory of work that can be converted into the money you need. And so that's what I mean, where let your practice take care of you instead of having a job to take care of your practice. And it's just yeah. a shift in mindset because, and, and now that we start to have the tools to allow you to do it on a, on that kind of level, and it's a brilliant way to collect. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I get so excited when I see people putting up our support pledges. I, I, I'm, I'm yes. preaching to myself at the moment because I need to do it. I've got a whole bunch of yeah. there. I need to do it. We'll yeah, that's definitely my task at the moment. Just get as many smaller works made as possible yeah, to them. Just be feed able to... it into that and just, you know. And, then, and I think it's also really this lovely bonus. And, and it mostly 
what I love also is mostly that work's being bought by other artists, which is great because it says this whole ecosystem. Yeah, and I think that's what <laughs> our support pledge has also done is making it kind of accessible to that's artists right. to invest into other people's practice, so it is. which is so important. So which artists most inspire your practice, would you say? Well, it's a mix. Um, Helen Frankenthaler, as from, I think, about 12 years old, been a big, big favorite. I love Motherwell. Um, I don't think he was a very nice man, but my God, I love his work. I love the style of his work. Um, I've been moved to tears by his paintings. Um, the abstract show that was at the Royal Academy, it took me off my game for about three months. I went and I just thought, There's this, I'll just never get there, right? But then I came yeah. back incredibly stronger. Um, and, but I really couldn't paint because of the number of times I just kind of go, wait, what are you doing? Um, so there were some real, um, real heroes in that show for me. Um, Lee Ufan, who's um, amazing, and that's really in the kind of the calligraphy side of my practice. So I have such a love for that. Um, I love Clifford Still, um, Hernando Secondino. I love, love, love his work. Um, and there's a whole avenue of my practice that's there's there's kind of a trajectory I've started and I left about five years ago that I want to pick back up that's uh has more to do with his practice and I really love what he does Fiona Ray, Cy Twombly, um, Franz Klein to name a few there's a lot yeah I mean they all sound so amazing I love hearing which what other artists pick as their artists who most inspire them because I find everyone always has yes. so many different artists and sometimes you've never heard of them but certain names just come up and you're just like yeah. yes and you can see the connection yeah. between the two so so obviously after through doing unit one but also within your own practice you've been involved in loads of exhibitions is there any that really have stood out for you to take part um, in well I think one that still astounds me is the um the show that Nemo and I did Onslaught Undone because we planned it we put it in the calendar and then he and I worked independently on the body of the body of paintings I was doing which are these sort of two and a half meter by one and a half meter large abstract paintings um and we worked and and we were still working together running the organization but we really kept what we were going to do we had concept conversations you know and he was doing sculpture um but you know he's like a recent rca grad he was working down to the wire and he was pushing limits and i really didn't know what he was doing and it was like oh my god this is gonna fall apart and he's gonna kill me <laughs> um and we had some strong words with one another but when the work started to come together here what blew us both away neither one of us would have anticipated is the synergy between the work, how the gestures in my paintings were identical to the gestures in his sculpture that I don't know if you saw, it was the one that went from inside outside here, this big black constructed piece that was just incredible. Um, so that is a landmark show for both of us, but for me, because it was an impeccable show and really beautiful, but, but this kind of synergy of our practices and the fact that we work together was incredible and then for that show to be invited to be exhibited in Lithuania and going to Lithuania and rebuilding that sculpture and putting it all together there and seeing it in an entirely different context 
and the gallery to sort of say it's without a shadow of a doubt one of the best shows we've ever had in our 25 year history in terms of how the sculpture and the work reanimated the gallery in a way they've never felt. Um, so that, that was huge. Um, there's so many, but um, I think a big landmark was to have Robin Mason here. I asked yeah. him for three or four years. Um, and I, it was just like a bit of a routine. I just say, so, you know, we're going to get you in the schedule this year. And I did it on Facebook and Facebook Messenger all the time. And he's like, Robin, what do you think? We gave a show. And what was amazing is this sort of the fifth year in a row or however many years I asked, he, um, he just sent back the whole show designed. He sent back visualization of the show. And, you know, three months later it was installed. Um, and it was a museum quality show. Um, I just loved Itch. I think it was really, really a great show. I'd love to get that show reinstalled anywhere. And if it weren't for COVID, I'd be making those conversations. Um, I yeah. I mean, that show was so amazing. Robin's work yeah. is just He's incredible. He's an unsung hero. He's just an extraordinary human being. Um, and so was Tony Carter, who was the head of Seating Guilds too. It's an amazing place. So that was, that was amazing. Um, and, you know, for Anne Petter's work and Deborah's work in it, and then Gabriel Gavon Rossi's poem. And it was just, I wish we'd had it up for longer. Um, it was just amazing to spend time with that work. And I think that's the other privilege for me is that, you know, people get to a gallery exhibition one or two times in the run of it. And then I, I get it every day all by myself, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, you know, the invitation downstairs, the sort of 35 artists, all of which worked with us at some point. So each one is a person and an experience and a, and a handful of memories of, of the exchanges. Um, and then, you know, and I just on my way to the bathroom, I get all of that. My this sort of amazing family of artists in the room. Um, so there's so many. And impromptu is the last one that we had in the in kind of the in between lockdowns. Um, joyful and so well received fabulous show um claire burnett and juliet dominati um sculpture and painting um so so many it you know manufactured with Shinixo was just incredible um and then a kind of a personal favorite for me was also um adjacent directly which was my curation of a show on environmentalism and i just I read so much on the Anthropocene and the environment and the climate crisis. I wanted to have a show that was not terrorizing. Um, so we just did a show in celebration of the seed. And it was a magical show. And that, that piece that's on our Instagram right now, the piano um, concert that we did, that was during Adjacent Directly. Um, so it was a piece that Sanavasan let some snails eat through an encyclopedia of world anthems. Wow, yeah, so as the snails amazing. ate through the encyclopedia, it merged all the anthems. And so it was song sheets and, and lyrics. And so Sana then gave the encyclopedia to a concert pianist, and he wrote a single world anthem. <laughs> um, and so that, we did a performance here. We hired a piano. And um, so that's now on our IGTV and, and the Instagram. So that's that's worth listening to because it's just so appropriate that we just kind of all have to get together. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think 
it was last yesterday afternoon I was looking through unit what your Instagram and just going through it you've exhibited so many amazing artists had so many amazing exhibitions and residencies and just and so many artists that are kind of not your typical I think maybe this summer there's been a I felt as an artist that you're kind of seeing the same names in certain exhibitions coming up and I was just when I was going through unit your Instagram last night I was just like wow like there is so many amazing artists which I've seen pictures of their work but don't really know them I just spent so much time just going through people's practices and it was so great to just see such kind of different like a different visual I don't know what the word like influx yeah, of images. Yeah well I mean because we've got this odd kind of um not odd but we have this amazing um number of extremely good art schools in one city you have this population mm. of really well-trained and really good artists and so that kind of um, momentum it starts to get a little bit what do you call um incestuous right that there's just it feels like there's this group of artists just getting shifted around buildings all over london um where we're really lucky is the open call we, we just have this incredibly international outreach. Um, and, you know, Marco Bazzari, his solo was profoundly good. And it's just, in, in COVID, it's such a shame mm-hmm. because it was just such a good exhibition and so appropriate to our neighborhood, but our time. Um, and, you know, he's an artist from Santiago de Chile and he came, through, came, came to us through the open call. Um, so this is where we're really lucky because we get to discover people that are really way outside what is the kind of um, population of the London art scene. Art- yeah. yeah, definitely. Definitely. And why was it so important for you to set up Unit 1 and for it to be supporting emerging contemporary artists? Well, it, 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 emerging is a word I'm dropping, I think, from my lexicon. Because I think we're all emerging all the time. And, you know, I think the, the, yeah. art, the, the practice of art is an emergent practice. So, the, you know, there's, if you're 75 and you're, you're prob- you could emerge into a whole new trajectory in your practice. So I'm, I think we, I started the space here with the intention to provide space and time for artists. And, and it's a story that's a bit bantered about, but I promise you it is without a shadow of a doubt true. But when I was sort of 10 years old, I was in the back of the car with my mom and I drew a picture of a barn. And I just said, look, I want a huge space where I can make lots of art and I have like lots of people and like, I don't know, somewhere to make pottery. And I, I drew this barn um, and, and had this dream from 10 years old to have this big space to make art. And what's really funny, so this was an old builder's merchant and I built it as it is now. Um, it didn't have plumbing or lighting or anything. And um, mm-hmm. when I approached it one day, I just looked at it and I went, oh my God, it's the barn. And it really is a complete barn shape. Yeah. Even like has a kind of timber facing to it. So this long held desire, it, it's kind of ancient in me. And it was never, there was no question that it would support artists and it would bring this family of artists together. I've been writing in my journal since about 18 about how peculiar the art world is and its exploitation of artists versus support of artists. And so it's just been this long desired, but also 
questions I've asked about what it is we're doing and what artists' role is in society. And then, like I said before, this wanting, wanting to have an eternal master's degree environment. Um, so it's a combination of all of that. Um, we are going to expand the benefits. So just maybe you don't know that, but when people apply for the solo residency, it's sort of the gateway into the organization. Um, if you interview for the solo, you're automatically added to our roster of artists that will be considered for other residencies. So the plan for us, especially now that we got Arts Council funding, is to start to really expand the benefits to our community of artists, which is almost 200 artists now. Um, and that's what I'm very, very interested in is a self-sustaining, self-validating group of professional artists that bring their practice to the world unexploited by a third party. That's really the core 11 year experiment because I've been doing this supporting artists and uh, providing residencies for 11 years now. Um, and it's coming, it's coming to this exciting new place, especially this year, three um, funding grants. So we're getting kind of the cultural institution status. Um, so it's being rewarded and it's getting traction and we're, you know, we really are having a magnetic appeal to really great artists. So it's, it's breathtaking for me um, to just witness it becoming what I've always wanted it to be. Yeah, that's so amazing. And do you think there's any residency that stood out to you the most? Well, there's the categories, years? right? <laughs> there's like, yeah. the there's the, you know, there's just, yeah. um, so Uvada um, Muti is a Istanbul-based, Hasidian Guilds as well, um, alumni, probably one of the most impressive minds and artists I've ever met. And and in he, he there's no separation from his practice and his living he is a living walking breathing cellular artist and there's no divide um so the he had an and i saw his graduation show and was moved spiritually moved just moved moved by everything about him and i love him to bits um and the experience of working side by side with him was thrilling but daunting because you know he sort of slept on the floor and you know this he's the only artist that got footprints on the ceiling and <laughs> um oh my he, goodness how <laughs> he worked with my daughter and they got you know up to their eyeballs covered in paint and um and and a real an artist that has no motive for anything else except to do that and think that because he's a philosopher and a maker um and and the world needs to support him. You know, he should not ever have to support himself. He needs to be supported to think and make. Um, so I would say he's unique in his almost, he, he doesn't inhabit the world we live in. And thank God he doesn't, just thank God he doesn't. Yeah. Um, so every, everyone else <laughs> are mere mortals in a way. And it doesn't mean he's the best artist. It just means he, he was really unique in, in that experience. Um, Solveig Satinstall Slade, uh, amazing sculptor, um, got glitter everywhere. Glitter, and then she had a, a scent piece that had this kind of smell of summer, which I totally disagreed with smelling like summer. 
Um, but I still have glitter on paintings. I can't seem to get off. Um, so, but amazing work. She was the, you should look back in the archive of her, her show, it was called Pool. It was really incredible. Yeah. But they, they, it, it doesn't stop giving. And, and the privilege of having that intensity. So, you know, we've got a Veronica Neukirch starting next week. And we found a way with the restrictions to allow her to start. You know, so she's going to cycle solo. She will not make any contact with anyone else. She will make her way here, wheel social distance, all that. But, um, you know, this... It, it's such a privilege to have that intensity and closeness whilst people are, because it's very intense. You have three months to put together a show and these shows have become quite prestigious. Um, and the solo yeah, residents, you know, from day one, they're already like nervous about the show. <laughs> um, and and yeah. so to witness that, to help them through that, to nurture what we feel is the very best um, and it's, you know, it can be super emotional. I think Mark Bazzari and I cried every yeah. two days. I mean, we Yeah. I think also what's so amazing about Unit 1 is that you can, where you're making the work right. is where the exhibition is going to be. And you can really, I can imagine artists really benefit from that when they're making work, being able to know what the space is. And if they're not sure about well, something, it's not being able always to go downstairs. downstairs. That's a sort of exception, but... Uh, Oh, it's 90% of the time it's within the same studio. I think it has its pluses and yeah. minuses because I'm often having to tell the artist to make the work and the show takes care of itself. Because if you design the show, it dries up, you know? Um, it's much better. Yeah. Because what we want with both the radical residency and the solo is this kind of abandon, you know, experiment, go crazy. There are, you know, you're... Most of our solos are relatively fresh out of uh, master's programs where they really had to kind of work to an end game. And we don't want to, we don't want to replicate yeah. that. Definitely. What we want is that what happens in the residency here to kind of plant seeds for a good couple of years of studio practice after. And also, you know, navigate them into things like yeah. Marco, you know, never been really to London apart from as a tourist. We navigated him into the Royal Society. He got the Gilbert Bays Award. Um, he got a, another residency following up. So, you know, that kind of beyond the studio practice, we do a whole bunch of coaching and nurturing and application advice. You know, Sheenuk we sponsored to get his um, visa to be here. There's, there's, it's, yeah, I'm a real mother hen. I want everyone to leave this organization bigger better and stronger yeah i think that's so important i think you can definitely see that coming forwards in the kind of passion you have that's for the it rule, really it? comes across the way you want to be treated makes it and, successful. You know, I, I would love to have an organization like this take care of me <laughs> and it is i mean it really yeah. it does take care <laughs> definitely so, different ways <laughs> yeah what advice do you have for artists wanting to apply? It's a good question. Um, so we, and we get emails asking that. Um, so the main thing that you should feel when you finish your application is that it really, really speaks of you. It speaks of you and it speaks of your practice. A lot of times more is not better, that you just have this very confident kind of understanding that you've communicated who you are. 
And, you know, we get crazy applications. Yeah. We had one where we interviewed a, a Texan artist. Um, he would not let us see him. Like, he just, we did the Zoom with him, and all he would let us see is his forehead. It was super funny. Really, really good artist. Oh, um, my goodness. Practice, <laughs> you don't get an interview unless, it's, unless you're pretty special. Um, and his application yeah. was almost indecipherable, but you could sense this really interesting practice. And, and a, a self-educated artist uh, madman, but great work. Um, so there isn't any rule, the, but the rule is if it demonstrates who you are and what you're doing incredibly strongly, you know, that that's all you can ever do really. Yeah. And would you say for, for example, compared to people from BA to MA, do you think it's better for people to wait until maybe they've done a master's no. and had a, a I mean, bit more time within I, the... I, 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 We've had those before applying. Um, no, I would say all rules are over, in my opinion. I've I have seen really, yeah. really impressive. No academic education. I've seen really impressive BA, really impressive MA. So, to me, it's strength of practice, and I think it's that um, an amazing thing where you know one when an artist is on on their path they know what they're doing and it, it often has nothing to do with the cultural zeitgeist it's this internal compass that they get and that in, and, and you know Ali Epp I think is an incredibly good example of that um, he he got yeah, on his path really early and he knew what he wanted to do um, and it matched up to zeitgeist impeccably um, but I think it was mostly to do with him having a great understanding of his compass and his generous, generous personality. Um, so he's just a good example of, you know, you can have a PhD and, and not have that internal compass set. Um, and that's, that's a sort of mysterious thing, but I do think it's coachable. I think you can coach people to understand more and more what they want as an artist and what they're doing. That's yeah, definitely. Well, amazing, <laughs> I feel like, we've covered so much it's been so great to chat about you know one mm. and to learn more about your practice and thank you so much for joining My me pleasure. on the podcast and yeah, we didn't even cover how we'll be we to know each other, each other because we didn't talk about final not over and and all that because that was also incredible but there's so much always to talk about there's always so much but yeah it's been so great to learn more about the gallery and kind of your connection to it and I just love the idea of how honestly, you drew this barn as a 10 year old <laughs> and it's really, now in Notting Hill. Be careful what you wish for because honestly <laughs> I think just wish for it and it conjures itself but in the strangest of ways and at the weirdest of times. <laughs> thank you Anna. Definitely. I mean you too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Artist Contemporary podcast. Remember to check out the Artist Contemporary Instagram and to subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with all the episodes, artists and exhibitions that are posted on the platform.